This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Checking In. I'm your host, Zara Barnes, Self Magazine's Interim Editor-in-Chief. Every week, people reach out to us with questions and concerns about health and wellness. And I connect with experts and people who have been there before. The goal is to find some answers so the people asking these questions, and anyone who's going through something similar, all feel a little better. This is actually our last episode of the season, and I'm so glad we're able to explore this very important topic, chronic illness and how to better advocate for yourself when you're at the doctor. Our question this week comes from Victoria. She's almost 30 now, and when she was 21, she was diagnosed with endometriosis, an often agonizing reproductive health condition that can disrupt a person's life in so many ways. I felt like I was just handed the diagnosis, and then I just, it was up to me. And <laughs> I'm an archivist, so I went to library school. I've, I'm just like basically a professional researcher, and I have to value that trait in myself because I was just thrown into this whole world of like, do your own research and read those medical journals and and what it, what do these terms mean? And and really just learning about my body and how it works and things that I never had learned before. I was quickly put on birth control. I tried, uh, I think, two or three pills over the course of nine, eight, nine years. Eventually, just it did not do anything. I started having new symptoms and, and new concerns that, frankly, were dismissed by other gynecologists and general doctors. But I just wish doctors listened more and and weren't afraid of, one, admitting they don't know and being willing to, you know, let's find a solution together or send you somewhere else that can help you. So is it possible to make navigating our medical system with a chronic illness even a little easier? Victoria just underwent two surgical procedures to try to address her symptoms. Endometriosis, like so many other chronic illnesses, requires a level of treatment that means interacting with the medical system in this really intimate, continuous way, which can be a challenge. I think a lot of you out there can probably relate to this experience. Even though Victoria has been living with a chronic condition for all these years, it's still hard to figure out how to approach medical providers and all the bureaucracy involved. Before we go further, I think it's important to explain what endometriosis is. So here's some context. Endometriosis is a disease that's generally thought to happen when the lining of the uterus, also known as the endometrium, ends up growing where it shouldn't, outside of the uterus on other tissues like the ovaries or bowels. Some experts think these wayward growths might be made of tissue similar to the endometrium, but with a few key differences, like being able to produce its own estrogen. 
People with endometriosis can experience severe, debilitating pain. This pain can strike at any time, but sometimes it happens in specific situations like during menstruation and sex. They may also have difficulty getting pregnant. That said, it's also possible to be symptom-free. About 10% of reproductive-aged people with uteruses are estimated to have endometriosis, though there may be even more who go undiagnosed. The only definitive way to diagnose endometriosis is through minimally invasive laparoscopic surgery. This involves a surgeon using a thin, tube-like instrument with a light and camera called a laparoscope to look for those endogrowths in a person's abdomen and pelvis. There's no cure for endometriosis, but options like hormonal birth control can help manage symptoms for some people. Laparoscopic surgery to remove those lesions can also help with symptoms, and in the most extreme cases, doctors may recommend a hysterectomy, although that doesn't necessarily mean full relief from the pain. In an effort to find that relief, Victoria had both laparoscopic excision surgery and a partial hysterectomy. Now, to offer Victoria some guidance, we're bringing back a familiar voice from season one to work through this really complicated topic. My name is Lauren Selfridge. I'm a psychotherapist licensed in the state of California. Many of the folks in my practice are women living with chronic illness. Partially, you know, what brought me to that is that I live with multiple sclerosis. So there's a shared understanding of the specific unique challenges of living with a chronic health condition. You might remember Lauren from the first season of this podcast, where she talked about navigating relationships with chronic illness. For this episode, we're going to focus on this really tricky dance a lot of us have to do while at the doctor. Trusting in our own knowledge about our bodies and knowing when to speak up when the care we're getting isn't enough. As so many people with chronic illness know, Just getting a diagnosis becomes a crash course in advocating for yourself. For Lauren, figuring out that she had multiple sclerosis took a while. When I first learned that something strange was going on with my body, it was literally I woke up one morning and had a different sensation in my foot than I was used to. And I had this numbness and the numbness crept up my leg over the next few hours and we wound up getting a medical appointment with my primary care doctor and I was offered just sort of experimentally, you know, maybe we should prescribe you some steroids and see if that helps. And I didn't feel good about having a prescription diagnose me, if that makes sense. So something just didn't feel right about that. And over the next few months, I wound up connecting with a neurologist who did these several assessments of me, did a few MRIs of my spine, and nothing was discovered. And she actually wound up telling me that I had a stress condition and that that was why I was feeling numbness, which didn't go away for months. And it was really concerning for me. So my medical journey wound up being one, especially at the beginning, and for so many other people who have a new condition. There's this common theme of not getting answers and also feeling minimized and not understood or believed around what's going on with our bodies, which is super frustrating to say the least. As Lauren and I talked, we kept coming back to how common this dynamic is for people with chronic illness. So to Victoria and anyone else listening who's been in this situation, you're definitely not alone. 
When I asked Lauren what advocacy advice she'd give to herself at the start of her journey with MS, she shared a few gems that were too good not to pass along. So if I could go back in time to the very beginning, I think I would say, Lauren, you have all the tools you need to get your needs met and and to advocate for yourself. And the only thing that might get in the way of that is self-doubt. And the self-doubt piece is so important because I think for many of us, when we show up in a doctor's office and we get what, what might be called white coat anxiety, that idea that there's this hierarchy and the doctor is the one who knows all and we're supposed to defer to the doctor, if we let that kind of oppressive system take over and we let the doctor just be the only expert in the room, we can shrink and we can stop advocating or our advocacy can kind of just, if I were to just let that one neurologist be the final doctor that I saw who told me that I had a stress condition and just trusted her entirely and gave up my intuition, I would wind up not getting the medical care that I needed. So I think what I would say to myself back then is keep going and believe yourself and trust yourself. All of this insight from Lauren is golden, but no matter how much you trust yourself, it can be nerve wracking to sit across from a doctor, even virtually, and try to get them to really listen and take you seriously. For Lauren, part of preparing for that process starts before the appointment with some research. I think you can go in multiple directions with research. And this is part of what I work with some of my psychotherapy clients on, which is, you know, I think of the need and the desire to research as sort of being on a spectrum where at one end, we bury our heads in the sand and we actually don't get the medical care we need because it's so stressful to look up what this condition means. And then at the other end of the spectrum is, I am so into the research that I could actually do a TED talk on this next week. And I've had to do a lot of emotional work with myself to understand like where my happy medium is between, I don't wanna be ignoring the need to find more information, but I also don't wanna go overboard to the point where I'm creating anxiety in my life. Ultimately, when it's time for me to ask questions, like I'll write down in my appointments or I'll even record if my doctor allows me to, what they're telling me, and then I'll kind of cross-reference it with other sources and ask questions. Maybe like Lauren and Victoria, you're great at research. Maybe you just like going down information rabbit holes. But it can also be a really stressful process, especially when your health is on the line. And so, when it feels like too much, Lauren suggested using research as a way to loop in another core advocacy element, your community. Surround yourself with people who believe you as well. I think that's another thing I see a lot for the the folks I work with in the chronic illness community and my friends in the chronic illness community is that it really helps to have social support from other people who love you and believe you. I've actually outsourced some of my research to loved ones. You know, like I have my partner's really good with like he'll read research stuff that would make me fall asleep. My mom's really good with being active and vigilant and keeping up to date on new information. And so that actually alleviates me from having to check all the time and do all the research and I feel less alone in it. Lauren told me about one time her research made a difference when she was getting her MS diagnosis. She learned that sometimes when you're advocating for yourself, that means saying no, as hard as that may be. 
for example, when they were diagnosing me, they recommended I get a spinal tap or they call it a lumbar puncture, which sounds, I think, to some people a little bit less painful, but that's what it is. It's a spinal tap. And I remember referring back to something that my mom taught me growing up, which is like, you don't have to say yes to everything that the doctors tell you. And I did a little research and found that you can get diagnosed without getting a spinal tap. And that's not true for everyone with MS, but for some of us. So I actually pushed back a little bit with the doctor and this particular doctor just said, okay. And I got my diagnosis without having to go through a potentially very painful procedure that actually could have left me with some long lasting impact on my body. So there is an ongoing need to check in with our bodies, with our intuition, with our needs and continually advocate for what feels right for us. So I think this is a fantastic reminder. And I was glad to hear that Lauren's doctor was open to her pushing back. But it can also be really scary if you're worried about offending or upsetting your doctor, which, let's be real, a lot of us are. I think that's very much related to survival and like we want to be seen and and not step on any toes. So it's a really careful balance. And I don't mean to say that it's easy to just cast aside, like who cares what they think? It really does make sense. We wanna manage those relationships and have a strong relationship with our doctors. And at the same time, I think of, there's this episode of Seinfeld where Elaine finds out that her doctor wrote in her chart that she's difficult. And I really like the idea that being a difficult patient is actually a good sign because it means that we're asking the questions we need to ask, we're pushing back where we need to. And when you think about the word difficult, it's like difficult for who? And yeah, maybe it's inconvenient for a doctor to have more questions, but it's actually a sign that we're really being thorough and looking out for ourselves. This is a really good time to note that we can't talk about interacting with the medical system without also talking about privilege. The level of care you receive or the likelihood that your doctor will really listen to you and believe you, even if you seem difficult, really can vary depending on things like your gender or race. When it came to Lauren's care, she credited her identity as a white woman for some of her general experience being believed and respected in medical situations. But whether you call it difficult, assertive, or any other word, the point remains, it's more than okay to stand up for your health. And if you're in a position where a medical professional is making you feel like a burden for the very valid work of advocating on your own behalf, it might be time to seek a second opinion if you can. On Lauren's path to diagnosis, she was making appointments with a variety of healthcare providers to try to figure out what was happening with her body. She was talking to an eye doctor, a chiropractor, a physical therapist, an acupuncturist, And it took time until she finally got the information she needed. I had to go on this whole winding journey just to get answers about this disease that was progressing in my body at the time without any care or treatment because we didn't know what was going on. This is something Victoria also experienced with her endometriosis. She couldn't get the answers she needed from that first doctor. And getting a second, or sometimes third, or fourth, or even fifth opinion can be a complicated process. When I was getting multiple opinions, I, my neurologist 
did not know at the time. And I think part of it was that the the version of me that was meeting with her in her office, receiving the information that I had a stress condition was a more passive version of myself because I was just used to believing what doctors told me. And it took some time outside the doctor's office where I got to discover like, I know my intuition is telling me to keep searching. So I didn't ask anybody's permission when I made all these other doctor's appointments. I just used the resources that I had. I didn't owe my neurologist anything, especially since I didn't feel like she was going to help me. She just gave me a pamphlet. So I don't think that we necessarily have to tell doctors when we're getting multiple opinions, but at the same time, it could also be really nice to say, hey, I would like to get another opinion on this, maybe even ask for some referrals from your doctor and and be unapologetic about it. Of course, Lauren noted that there's also a lot of privilege in that too. Appointments can be expensive, especially if you don't have insurance or if it isn't covered, and they take time. But second opinions can be incredibly valuable. One study published in the American Journal of Medicine in 2015 examined data from a program that allowed patients to request a free second opinion. Researchers analyzed almost 7,000 second opinions, and they found that more than 41% were for finding treatment options, and almost 35% were for diagnostic concerns. The second opinion ended up changing the diagnosis about 15% of the time and led to a change in treatment about 37% of the time. We're going to keep talking about self-advocacy, the role doctors can play, and how your own advocating could also help others right after this quick break. So, second opinions can be a big part of self-advocacy when you have a chronic illness. And one thing to keep in mind while you're seeking out different doctor's advice is finding one who really listens to you. Lauren described this as emotional intelligence. For me, I would say anything that indicates that they are interested in the life of the whole person that they're speaking to. So if they're asking questions about who's supporting you and what's it like to be getting this information, that's a sign that they're going to have some emotional intelligence, which can make a huge difference psychologically. That said, not all doctors do, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad doctors. It just might not be an area of strength for them. And for some people, that's okay. But I would also say to look out for doctors making minimizing comments because that's a red flag. That's a sign that you will likely not have all your needs tended to and cared for. And to me, I I really think it's important to notice if a doctor, even sometimes it's not verbal, sometimes there's body language that's minimizing or just the amount of time that you're given to talk about something. If you're not getting your needs met, listen to that. That's really important. Our listener, Victoria, was able to work with her doctors to get the treatment that was right for her. But then she had to get her insurance company on board. With this most recent surgery, there were things they wouldn't cover at first. Ultimately, her surgeon talked to the insurance reviewer to get it approved. But that experience left Victoria with other questions. I felt at some point my advocacy was taken away. Like at some point I wasn't making a difference 
to their decision. And that was really challenging because I I didn't know what to do. I couldn't really do anything. But at the same time, I wonder, is there something else I could have done originally to, to you know, follow the, the rules of this crazy system? Lauren says that unfortunately, this is so common for people navigating the medical system. I have a lot of compassion for that experience of trying your hardest to get people on board, to get your doctors advocating for you. And I want to say I'm sorry that you had to go through that during such a vulnerable time and that you had that experience of feeling like your agency was taken away. And so as much as I wish I had an answer for, you know, is there something else that you could have done originally? Quite frankly, I don't think that it's ever really the fault of the patient. It's really not on you and it shouldn't have to be on you to fight for this, even though I absolutely support your self-advocacy. But at the same time, the fact that I don't have an answer for you in some ways is the best empathy and validation that I can give around how impossible the situation can feel fighting for your right to have medical support and attention and care. So now Victoria is in this new phase. She's had this big surgery and she's feeling better. But as her body changes and as her needs change, she wants to expand her definition of advocacy. How do I advocate not just for myself, but for others? How do I share my story in a way that is useful to others? How do I help bridge the gap between the experts and the layman? Because with a disease like this, we the patients become the experts. It's very strange. And I guess I would want to know how to continue to do that. How to not lose focus on paying attention to my body as I get older, now that I have this new situation and new reality. I want to start by addressing the first part of that question, how Victoria can help others, which is such a beautiful sentiment. Here's Lauren's advice for that. Really listen to that drive and that impetus that you have, which is you've got a very unique perspective and being able to understand somebody who's been where you've been. And that's a gift. And so any way that you want to put yourself out there is going to be a gift and it's not required. You know, we don't have to be leaders just because we're living with health challenges. But if you feel that drive, then it may actually be a call for you. I know that's why I started my chronic illness podcast. This is not what I ordered. And I I did it to create community and to kind of normalize having health challenges, because I think most of us actually have some version of a chronic illness or a health challenge or an injury, and it can be really liberating to connect with one another. And I get the sense that maybe this is something that you might want to do too, whether it's start a blog, create a discussion group or support community, hold meetings, workshops, share your story, write articles, be a guest on podcasts. Anything that speaks to you is, is going to be a wonderful contribution if you choose to make it. And sometimes, in the process of creating that community and helping other people find the support they need, you might just benefit too. That's what happened for Lauren when she started This Is Not What I Ordered. The podcast is something that I created by first thinking about what I 
love doing. And so when I created the podcast, I knew I wanted to do something collaborative because I'm a strong believer that I don't hold all the answers for all people. (laughs) So I love talking to people about how they approach living with chronic illness and health challenges, how they've gotten through the hard moments or are still getting through the hard stuff, what they're learning about themselves in the process. And it kind of comes with the belief that we all have wisdom that can be tapped into sometimes because of our challenges. I don't think chronic illness brings wisdom with it. I think how we respond to the illness is what strengthens us and what taps us into who we really are on a soul level. And I joke that the least important thing to me when I talk to interviewees or or anybody really about chronic illness is what their diagnosis is, not because I don't care, but because I find that the whole person is the most important to me, like the person's spirit and what brings them joy, what fulfillment means to them. And it's different for everybody, but I find that there's a much more grounded and expansive worldview that can be possible through living in a body that's going through these challenges. That's such a key reminder that you are really gaining a lot of wisdom as you go through this challenging process. And that's something that came up in Victoria's question too. How can she not lose sight of that wisdom and keep trusting her body and intuition? It's especially hard with a condition like endometriosis because there's a lot of emotional complexity there. The thing where I I noticed that sexism and transphobia kind of all come together is this minimization of the experience of anyone who's not a cisgendered man, where there's this undermining and it's kind of sneaky. There's, it's sort of like an emotional invalidation about, oh, you're just making a big deal of something or, oh, it's not real. It's mirroring what so many of us experience even outside the medical world of just being told we're crazy. And it can undermine our self-confidence and our belief in our intuition. And so that's why I think it's so important to have like a therapist that gets it or to have, you know, just to have people in your life. Therapy isn't necessarily required for everybody, but for for folks who want therapy to really process and like kind of go into, wait a second, how do I sort out what's true and what's not, what's mine and what's not, even that sense of, you know, I think we can sometimes feel like we've betrayed ourselves if we kind of let that story kind of take over a little bit and undermine our intuition. It's like really important to understand that that's just internalized oppression. And we didn't create that for ourselves. It's not our faults that we sometimes doubt ourselves. So it's it's not helpful to actually blame ourselves for that dynamic, but it is helpful to name it, to understand it, and to be able to reclaim what we know in our bones is true. And even if we don't know the answers to be able to listen to our intuition and be relentless in our pursuit of the care that we need and deserve. Do you have tips for people who are dealing with just the general frustration and stress that come with having a chronic illness? Yes. I think one of the things, knowing that this is an emotional journey or that anything that's hard has an emotional component, that 
is so crucial to have things in your life that are nourishing to you, whether it's taking a break from the research, taking a break from trying to make decisions, giving yourself a little mini spa day after a medical appointment just to celebrate that you're taking care of your body and also give yourself some soothing and ease. So like taking a bubble bath and lighting a candle and playing music that you love. Being around people who both can process with you and people who are willing to not talk about it with you. Because I think, you know, sometimes that's the same friend, sometimes it's multiple friends who you can just joke around with because we really need to find balance. Even when things are really challenging, we need those moments of joy and rest and rejuvenation and giving ourselves a break from being in the mire. Now, that isn't always possible because sometimes we're in an acute period of physical challenge and we really need to get answers fast. So this is essentially a reminder to continue to focus on self-care as much as you can, knowing that we need breaks. We need sometimes emotional breaks from feeling it all. Like that's why I really love zoning out and watching a funny TV show or a movie, just to give myself a break from all of the processing. Okay, well, Lauren, I have just enjoyed talking to you so much. Oh, thank you. It was really fun to talk to you, too. Victoria, I hope this answered some of your questions about advocating for yourself as you continue on this next phase of your journey. And for anyone else living with a chronic illness, I hope this gives you the information and encouragement you need to speak up for yourself when seeking medical care. Thanks so much for checking in. If you enjoyed this show, make sure to rate and leave a review. Also, be sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app. It helps new listeners find us. You can find more information and references from this episode in our show notes. Follow Self on Instagram at Self Magazine and follow me at Zara Barnes. Checking In is produced by Wonder Media Network. Executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Lead producer is Lindsay Crowdewell. And production assistant is Alessandra Tejeda. On the self team, our director of programming and development is Sarah Yalowitz. Our digital director is Amy Isinger. Researcher is Madeline Shire. From the Condé Nast Entertainment side, the head of production is Carrie Clayton. Executive producer is Stacia Jones. And senior producer is Ilan Schoonmaker. The theme music is by Biscuit and Butter, courtesy of Blaze LLC. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>